We're going through Genesis this semester. We're looking at Abram these last couple of weeks. And actually, in a lot of ways, the topic, when you look at the story of Abraham, is faith. He is someone who's lauded in the New Testament as being a man of faith. And actually, what we read last week was about Abram's faithlessness in Egypt. And in chapter 13 this week, we're going to begin to get a picture of what great faith looks like. Um, And so we're going to read from Genesis 13, verses 1 through 18. This is on the heels of Abram's episode in Egypt, where if you weren't here last week, there's a famine in the... God's promised Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12, make him a great nation to bless the world through him. Um, And he said, I'm going to give you a land, and from there the world will be blessed through you. This is the beginning of God's plan for redemption. Um, Immediately after that, there's a famine in the land. This is all from last week. And Abram went down into Egypt where there was food for his family. While he was there, on his way there, he got worried about his own safety because he had a very attractive wife, and so he concocted this plan, just tell everybody you're my sister because they actually might kill me for you. Um, What ensues is actually his wife gets married to Pharaoh. Um, So because he didn't trust God, as an example of faithlessness, he brought sin and evil and pain in the world, and yet... This is what God does for Abram. In light of that, he actually blesses him. He gives him a ton of stuff through Pharaoh and delivers him through Pharaoh. It's a story of God's faithfulness in light of Abram's faithlessness. Chapter 13, Abram begins to give us a picture of what faith looks like. So read with me. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Eyes, referring to chapter 12, verse 8, and to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's, uh, Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction direction of Zor. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord." And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look north and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of your earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, faith is confusing to me. Um, 
I don't know what it is, and I'm so distraught over my own faithlessness, dear God. I pray now that as we consider your word, that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, dear Lord, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would give us faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Our question really kind of for the end of the semester is that, is really is, what is faith? And Abram begins to give us a picture in this text of what it looks like. But before we go into the text, I actually want to talk about what faith is not. And we learned, and just talk about it briefly, we learned last week a little bit of what faith is not. And what faith is not, is first thing it's not, is it's not control. Faith is not the need to build a contingency plan around your life because Jesus isn't enough. Right? It's, faith is not saying, God, you're not trustworthy, so I have a backup plan because I know I can trust what I can control. I can predict and make my future happen. And so I'm going to trust you, Jesus, as long as your plan works for me, but I've got backup plans for my life, for my relationships, for my body, whatever it is. And so we're managing and we're manipulating and we're working to secure our hopes because we're not really sure that Jesus can hold on to us tight enough, right? And that's Abram in chapter 12. Things got dicey. He made a rational but immoral choice. Listen, I might die. I know, God, you said that you would deliver me. I know that you said your promises, but I might die if I don't do this. So he makes what is a logical but immoral choice to secure his own life because he wanted to control the circumstances around him because he didn't trust Jesus, that Jesus was in control. He didn't trust God, that God was in control. Faith is not control. One of the ways we actually misunderstand faith, this is why we don't give away money, right? Because money allows us to secure our environment and give us security. Because this is what happens if you give away a lot of money. You don't have it anymore. It's kind of straightforward. If you give away a lot of money, you don't have it anymore, and you just have to trust Jesus. That means that your retirement or your car payments or whatever it is are a little bit shakier. We don't give away money because it's one of the ways we're actually faithless. This is why... In a lot of dating relationships, a lot of times we're content in a relationship that's full of sin where we're just crushing each other, sinning against each other, and we're scared to death to break up. Because you know what? If you break up, you'll be might be lonely. And so we're faithless. We're actually settling for something we hate but relieves our loneliness for a moment because we can't trust Jesus to be our companion. Another form of this faithlessness, this kind of faithlessness control element looks like is it looks like trying to manipulate God into giving us blessings by acting religious. The belief that God's going to give us good things because you've worked harder and you've had more quiet times. That's not faith. That's manipulation. We can actually be religious in our control faithlessness. Faith is not control, but on the other hand, it's actually not laziness either. On the other hand, there are those of us who do nothing. Maybe those of you with a little bit of theological savvy have done what I've done in the past and said, I don't do religious things because I believe in grace. That's not faith. That's misusing the name of Jesus to justify your laziness. That's what that is. If you believed in the work of Jesus, if you believed that the king was coming again to restore his creation and he offers mercy to any of those who wants to enter into his kingdom, 
You would not live hours of your day in front of a TV and a computer screen and leave school half attended and half done. That's not the life of faith. Faith is not laziness. If everything the Bible says is true, our lives would look drastically different if we believed them. Faith is not laziness. It's actually not doing nothing. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look, about, look at what faith is. And tonight, we're going to look at some aspects of it. We're going to look at two things that faith looks like, and then what makes faith great. Two things it looks like, and then what makes faith great. So kind of really what it looks like in your life, and then really where it comes from. And the first thing we see in this passage, as Abraham begins to portray what faith looks like, is that faith begins with worship. The first thing that Abram does is worship. Abram's kicked out of Egypt. And then verse 2, Abram uh, went out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into Negev. And now Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. And he journeyed from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Abram was rich in livestock, silver, and gold. And if you remember the passage that we read last week, then you remember the sin of Abram, that he actually sells out his wife to Pharaoh. Uh, If you recall last week, we actually briefly talked about how there are Christian ministries today to fight against men like Abram, like International Justice Mission. But he didn't trust God to take care of him, to preserve his life. Although God had promised to make him into a great nation, and God's response was this, God blessed him. Verse 2, Abram was rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Those were gifts Pharaoh gave and never required back from Abram, even though Abram actually brought pain and, and evil upon the house of Pharaoh. This is one of the most shocking passages in Scripture. God just blesses Abram and gives him a ton of stuff. Verse 2 is a testimony to the amazing goodness of God. He blessed Abram and then he delivered him. While Pharaoh courted Abram's life, Pharaoh, I mean, Abram's wife, Pharaoh showered riches on him, and then God brought a plague on Pharaoh's house for what Pharaoh had done with Abram's wife. And Pharaoh sent Abram away with everything he had given him, not because Pharaoh was a great guy, but because he was scared to death of Abram's God. In the face of Abram being an idiot, God not only delivered but provided for him with the wealth that's described in verse 2. Okay, if you're Abram in this circumstance, what do you do? Verse 4, you worship the Lord. You call on the name of the Lord. He went back to the altar that he had built at chapter 12, verse 8, and he worshiped the Lord and gave him sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. The first thing that we see from Abram as he begins to act faithfully is that he praises God. He worships God. The life of faith is a life of worship. Now, it's not worship based on nothing, and it's not worship for worship's sake, and it's not worship where Abram's goal is to feel something. And it's not worship that's driven or evaluated by how Abram kind of feels at the moment or if he gets something out of it. It's worship in light of the faithful deliverance and blessing of the Lord. It is a response to God's faithfulness. When you get good news, when you get great news, you don't just think, okay, does the way I'm about to express my joy for this, about this good news, does the manner in which I... I'm about to express my joy. Does it make me feel good? Does it make others welcome? Is it contemporary? Is it traditional? No! When you get good news, you're just excited. And it just flows out of you. 
Worship is not about you and what you get out of it. The reason you're frustrated, oftentimes we're frustrated, is because actually we walk into it thinking that's the goal. That's horribly selfish. When Elizabeth does sweet things for me, okay, I love this new seven and a half ounce Coke Zero can. You know what I'm talking about? It like they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> Elizabeth got me a bunch of them yesterday after like two weeks of involuntary fasting from them. But um, when Elizabeth does something sweet for me, I don't sit back and think, how can I get the most out of praising her for doing something sweet for me? That's idiotic and actually selfish. Worship is delight in the Lord for what He has done for us. It's delight that's so strong that it comes out of us. It's what Barbara's been doing for the last three days about Jessica. <laughs> right? He doesn't think, how can I make this tasteful and modern? You know, is it traditional or contemporary? He just likes Jessica and tells people about it and just delights in her. Our delight in the Lord, our worship stems from His saving work, His steadfast love, His beautiful promises, not musical style. And if you want worship to mean something to you, then the answer is go and see what God has done. Have you ever started trying to like a band because cool people around you like a band? Yes? I've been trying to do this with the Avett brothers recently. Everybody that I think is cool likes the Avett brothers, so I'm like, well, to be cool, I have to like the Avett brothers. That's the most horrible experience in the world is to try to like a band you don't like, right? And we've all felt like we need to do it at some point to be cool. Okay, that actually defines a lot of our worship experience. As we sit in a room with some songs and we're trying to like something we don't like. And that's why oftentimes our response to that kind of empty worship experience is not just turning to the one who's worthy of worship, seeing what he's done on our behalf, but it's actually just tinkering with the instrumentation. Soren reminded us yesterday, me and a couple other people, of something that happened while we were in Greece. While we were in Greece, every day we woke up, and every day, all day, was spent basically struggling to figure out how God was using us there. Because we kind of felt useless doing what we are doing. How do you have meaningful hour-and-a-half conversations with people you're never going to see again? It's hard. It's really hard to do that and not come across as a Christian jerk who's pushing people through a formulaic method and getting them to pray a prayer that they don't understand. And so all day we just struggled to figure out how God would be faithful and what became abundantly clear throughout the week is that we can't change people. And our only hope is that God's going to do what He promises to do, which is God promises to sow some seed with some of His people, God promises to water that seed with some of His other people, and God oversees the growth of His kingdom. And He takes bits and pieces of ministry from His people to grow His kingdom. If that's not true, our time in Greece was a waste. You see, it was pressed upon our daily experience that everything we did there had to be lived out trusting in God's promises. And you know what happened every night while we were in Greece? This is what Soren reminded us of. Every night, late at night, when we were exhausted, down in the bottom room of a nursing home with one guitar with no practice and with songs that almost nobody knew in a room full of bad singers, we had delightful worship. The music was not awesome. God was. Faith begins with worship. And if you're wondering why worship is a mystery to you sometimes and boring to you and why the object of worship doesn't compel you, then you're normal. But this is what we have to do. 
This is the answer to our worship woes. We've got to start believing in our sin. Faithful worship's never going to make sense or flow from our hearts until we get first things first. And that means the first thing we do is admitting to ourselves that we love ourselves, that all of our relationships are about me and about what I get out of them that we think we're better than everybody else, and that we even use religion for our own selfish ends. We don't delight in the king. Actually, we want the king to come and serve in our kingdom. Worship is not going to make sense until you believe in your own sin, until we stop believing the asinine lie that we're basically good people who sometimes make mistakes. If that's your belief, worship's always going to be hollow for you. Jesus is very clear about this point in Luke 7. He's eating dinner with a bunch of pastors, and a prostitute comes into their dinner party and cries at his feet and washes his feet with her hair and with her tears. And all the pastors are confounded, just like any of us would be in that situation. And Jesus makes this point. He says, listen, he who thinks they're forgiven little, who needs a little Savior because they have a little problem, loves little. But people who know that they're forgiven much, they need a big Savior because they know they have a big (coughs) problem, a big sin problem, they love much. They love big. Look, some of us, all of us to some degree, think that we've tricked people into thinking that you're a good person. And the prospect of really dealing with some of the stuff in your life unnerves you. You're scared to death of it ever coming out. And I pray that God actually would afflict you with a righteous sense of guilt over your sin because your sin is evil and my sin is evil. And it's dark and it's big. You don't need a little Savior. None of us need a little Savior. We all need big Saviors. My prayer for you, my prayer for my children, my prayer for myself and my wife, is that we would understand the guilt of our sin, that it's big, so that when we're introduced to the big Savior, our worship will be sweet. Our sin is big, just like Abram's was, and we need a big Savior. When you get that, we'll start to act like Abram in chapter 13. The first thing that faith looks like is worship. Abram believes, he has faith that God and his sovereign power with divine patience and divine kindness and perfect gentleness and unfathomable compassion and steadfast love has delivered Abram and blessed him in spite of Abram's sin. And he begins to worship. Faith begins with worship, and it leads to freedom. That's the second point. Look at the passage starting verse 5. Lot, who went with Abram, this is his nephew, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land couldn't support both of them dwelling together. The possessions were so great. There's one side note here. Abram, the inheritor of God's blessings, when people are blessed by God, the people around them get blessed. That's where Lot's wealth came from. A side note here is when God's people come into an area, the people around them get blessed. But anyways, Abram's, he's become this great, great caravan, and the land couldn't support him. And then we find out in verse 7, uh, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and Lot's livestock, and there were even the Canaanites and the Perizzites in the land. It was crammed. God had actually blessed Abram so much that the land couldn't support him anymore. Now remember who Abram is and where he is at this moment. He is the one to whom God gave the promise of this land that he's standing on right now. 
And so how does he respond? God had told him, chapter 12, this is going to be your land. He's standing on the land God had promised him right now. And what does Abram do? He says, you know what, Lot? Take your pick. You can have what you want. Now, how can he do that? He can do it because he's living by faith. He's heard the promises of God. He struggled to believe the promises of God. He's going to struggle later to believe the promises of God. But right now, he's recognizing God is going to bless me. His promises are sure. Salvation, redemption, blessing comes because God is faithful, not because I'm going to fight with my nephew to make sure I have this land. I don't have to assert myself right here. Y'all, this is, if you are a son or daughter of the king, to know that all the covenant blessings of forgiveness, of life, of peace, of reconciliation, that all of those in Jesus, like we said when we confessed our sins, are yes and amen in Jesus. They are for you because God is faithful, not because you're a wonderful person. It's liberating to think you don't have to prove yourself, you don't have to assert yourself, you don't have to defend your rights at every moment because you have everything in Jesus. And it's not just liberating, but you actually become a pleasant, giving person, a forgiving person, a kind person, a patient person, a gentle person, a self-controlled person, a joyful person to be around. That's why they're called the fruit of the Spirit. When you know that you have everything in Jesus, you can give everything up to other people. And the reason these characteristics often aren't true of us and of me is because I don't live trusting in the promises of God. We live trusting that peace and happiness and rightness and justice is only gained by us asserting ourselves in all of our individual circumstances. Let's get, draw a picture here. Everybody sins against their roommate, right? Canvas ministry is helping people through roommate problems. That's essentially it. We want you to love Jesus and figure out how to do it with your roommate. Um, and there's no more probably consistent complaint from roommate. We've all had this at one point where they borrow something without asking. The unasked borrow, right? Or the unasked use. You have your protective little realm that you're trying, you know, you're willing to share some things, but these are the areas you can't come into, you can't touch, you can't use, right? <laughs> I think that's the spirit at work right now. (laughs) It's technology, it's video games, iPod, clothes, whatever it is. And whenever you find out they borrowed it, and worst case scenario, maybe you've been in this situation, they broke it, right? It's infuriating because it's yours. You bought it for you. You asked them not to use it. If there's no forgiveness, if there's no resurrection, if the promises of God are not true, then you better make them understand. You better execute justice. You better have the fight. You better start the rumors. Whatever it takes to make them pay. If Christ has reconciled us to the Father, if He's made payment for all our sins, if you've been adopted and He's preparing a place at the Lamb's Feast for you, then who cares? Seriously, buy him a new, better iPod. Who cares? Abram didn't just not care. He actually says, Lot, take the best. Abram's hope was in God and not in what he could see and what he could secure and assert for himself. And he was free from the compelling need that we all have to assert, defend, prove, acquire 
ourselves and our relationships. The reason, the reason when you get angry because someone plays your video game and messes up your character on your role-playing game is because your hope is in leveling up and not the resurrection. <laughs> Unfortunately, I need to say that in this setting. The reason that we can't be happy for our friends when good things happen to them is because we don't trust Jesus to allow good things to happen to us. The reason that we can't fathom not fighting or bickering or defending our rights is because we don't believe Jesus will take care of us. Right? The situation where you're left out. You're not invited by a friend. You found out someone said something about you. They did something that you don't like the way they did it. They didn't behave the way you would have. They made roommate arrangements next year without telling you. So you've got to make them pay. You've got to give them the cold shoulder. And you've got to let that envy, you know how good it feels to let envy and the anger fester inside and you fantasize about the ways you're just going to verbally destroy them. If all you have is your social identity in this little group or another little group on campus, that's exactly what you should do. You better fight for it. But if you're in Jesus... And the promises of Abram, they're for you just as they were for him. Who cares? Seriously. Go love on them. Go forgive them. Go be happy for them. If your identity is in Jesus, who cares how much it's going to cost you to bite your tongue and endure the pain and actually then move towards the same people with compassion and love? Do you see that the reason that we actually suck at being friends is actually because we don't trust Jesus to be a good friend. We don't trust Him to take care of us. And if it's true that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus for us, then we have so much to give and so little need to assert all our rights all over the place. You're free. Y'all are free. You're free from the need to assert yourself. You're free from the lie that things make you happy. Man, if you buy into this, there's so much more joy to be had in this life. Because your life is no longer defined by struggling to get yours. Your life is actually defined by delighting in the promises of the Lord. And you'll actually have less and be a happier person. Faith looks like worship. Faith looks and it feels like freedom. And the, last, the second point, the last point is is really asking the hard question, which is, okay, well then how do you have great faith? How do you have that kind of faith? And I want to tell you this way, that faith is made great by its object and not its subject. Faith is made great by its object and not its subject. Faith is strong because of its object. Because when you look at this passage, what are the bookends for this episode? In chapter 12, you had God delivering Abram in spite of his sin, out of Egypt, and out of evil, and actually even blessing him. And then in verse 14, on the other side of this episode, the Lord says to Abraham, after Lot had separated him, He says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. All the land you see I will give to you. If somebody can count all the dust particles in the world, they can count how many, how great your family will be. Walk around through it all. The length and the breadth of the land, I'm going to give it all to you. And Abram did. 
what he does when the promises of God are sweet. He set up his tent, and he settled by a tree, and he built an altar, and he worshiped the Lord. What are the bookends of this passage of this picture of faith? The bookends are the faithfulness of God. God delivering him and God reaffirming his promises to him. Do you see that what makes Abram's faith great is the object and not Abram's vigor? What makes Abram's faith great is the object he trusts in, not his own personal vigor. The reason that we're all insecure and don't follow Jesus and are scared to death of actually trying to obey Him and feel guilty about worship is because we still measure the strength of our faith by our own vigor. We mistake intensity for sincerity. We think it's the intensity that makes our faith strong, not the sincerity. And that's the reason we're so insecure about our faith. Do I have it? Is it enough? Is it intense enough? We think that what makes faith strong is our vigor and not the object we're trusting in. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of faith. Well, let me illustrate it. I used, in my slimmer days, I used to rock climb a little bit. That was actually a sport I was trying to convince myself I liked because people I thought were cool did it. But that's another story. <laughs> um, it's miserable. But um, those ropes... Somebody can tell me, knows better than I. They can hold over 1,000 pounds. And everybody's scared the first time they hang out over a rock face on that rope. Does the ability of the rope to hold someone up depend on how strong their faith is? Absolutely not. Whether they're super confident or scared out of their minds, guess what? The rope holds. It's the object that makes their faith great. Another illustration, you might have heard this before. You know, we had the winter freeze. You have a frozen pond, and it's only frozen over a fraction of an inch. If you have utter and complete, strong, confident faith that it will hold you up, will it? No. It won't. If a pond is frozen over and the ice is three feet thick, and you're scared out of your mind to step out on it, and you have very little faith and wavering confidence and you inch out on the ice, does the ice hold you up? Yeah. Do you see what makes faith great? It's not your vigor, but actually the object of it. Faith gets its strength from the object, not the subject, which is you. Faith gets its strength from the thing that it is in. It's not the faith of the person that steps on the ice that holds them up. It's the ice. This is why Jesus says, with faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Because it's not the faith haver that moves the mountains. It's what you're trusting in that moves the mountains. God can move mountains with tiny bits of faith. Thick eyes can, ha- can hold up people with tiny bits of faith. Great faith stems from the object you trust in, not the amount or the vigor or the intensity of faith you have. Abram's great faith arises from the one he has faith in, who delivered and blessed him from Egypt. And after this episode, reaffirms again, look everywhere, I want you to see, this is all for you. I will give it to you. Abram's faith stems, great faith stems from the faithfulness of the one he trusts in. Brief points of application. Where's your faith? That's the first question. 
And some of us have great faith in foolish things. You have great faith in your bravado, your personality, your scheduling, your likability, your grades, your body, your humor, your family. And if you want to know, ask your question, if you really want to struggle, okay, where is my faith? Ask yourself this question, what is disaster for you? That reveals your faith. A disaster for a Christian is the Scripture being false. What is a disaster for you? That reveals what you trust in. And some of us have strong faith, but in foolish things. And here are the consequences. God's relentlessly fair. And you'll get everything the object of faith can give you, whatever it is you trust in. You might be cool, you might be rich, you might be great looking for a while, and you'll intimidate all of us. But your faith is only as strong as what you're trusting in. So no matter how awesome you think you are, I plead with you, consider what your faith is in. God's going to give you everything what you pursue can give you. You can spend the next 60 years fighting for wealth and for fame and for accomplishment and for people and for a moral reputation. And you can get God is faithful to give you all that that will give you. It gives you death. That's what all those things can accomplish for you. And I know a lot of y'all also, you have weak, struggling faith in Jesus. And we're just hanging on and hoping that the words from Isaiah are true. And these are words elsewhere from Isaiah that are for you. A bruised reed he won't break, and a burning wick he won't quench. And from Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, you're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for you shall inherit the earth. And with your tiny faith of a mustard seed, God's going to do everything for you. All His promises are sealed for you. You are forgiven. Your internal inheritance is secure. The Lord smiles, smiles over you. I already know. The Bible already tells us what He's going to say to you when you join Him. He's going to look at you and He's going to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And the Lord will bless you and keep you make his face to shine upon you your faith feels weak and you're just holding out the promises of God are true knowing that it's only if this grace thing is true that you have any sure hope and know this all God requires is a mustard seed your faith is great because your God is great how to improve your faith right I don't get very applicable here real brief Read the Bible. If you want to improve your faith, if you want to see how great your God is, read Scripture. Don't read it to make God happy or to manipulate Him into giving something you want, giving you something you want. It doesn't work. That's actually called witchcraft. Um, read it to find out who He is, to hear about His faithfulness, to hear about the great links He went to to save you. That He is what all of our idols aren't. He's sufficient. You can't get to know a person without communicating with them, right? And to find out if a person, a friend, girlfriend, potential boyfriend, whatever, to find out if they're trustworthy, you have to spend time with them. You have to hear stories about them. And as you learn more, you learn one of two things. Either you can trust them or you can't. But the way you come to trust them is not by you 
working up faith to trust them, but by getting to know them, hearing stories about them, getting to know their history. And that's what Scripture is. It's the really lengthy testimony of all the different ways God is faithful and God keeps His promises. The Bible is literally saying, God saying, I am faithful and here are thousands of years, of years of stories of how I am faithful and trustworthy and just and good. And your faith will improve when you see how strong the one is in whom you have faith. And that's what happens to Abram. These are our applicable moments in RUF. Read the Bible. Here's the other one. Go to church. Go to church so that you can gather with the Lord's people and gather at the Lord's table, and you can hear God's word, and you can respond together with God's people in joy over the myriad ways that He is good, and that He is gracious, and that He forgives sexually broken people. He forgives hypocrites. His promises of grace are true for anybody who would come to Him. According to the Bible, there aren't any mature Christians outside of the church, according to Paul. Go to church not because you magically make God more happy with you by checking off your attendance box, but because it is in the life and in the worship with brothers and sisters that we find out more and more how faithful our Father is. Let's pray.